Well, tonight we begin our new series in the book of Revelation. I'm excited to do this verse by verse through the book of the Revelation. So take your Bible and get a copy of your notes. Last chance. Anybody missing them? I don't see any notes over here. This beautiful lady over here, she needs a set of the notes tonight. So does anybody else, while, while Mike's at it, while he's up. Now, oh, you got your covered. Oh, get an extra one there. Look at that. Now they're going, they're just flying out the door now. Love it. Okay. All right, so Revelation 1, I guess I had better turn there as well. As we get started, let me ask you this. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? First thing that comes to your mind when I say the book of Revelation. Who wants to go first? The very first thing you think of when we say Revelation. Anybody? What's first? Huh? The return of Jesus. First thing that comes to mind in the book of Revelation. Prophecy. Absolutely. What else? First thing that comes to mind in the book of Revelation. Well, how can, the, how can you have two first things? <laughs> Prophecy and rapture. Who else was going to say rapture? All right. How many times? How many times is the rapture mentioned in the book of Revelation? Anybody know? Zero, <laughs> zero times actually. But I do believe it's there, and we're going to see it in a few weeks. But it's mentioned a total of zero times. Should I be concerned that you got your big Bible there? Hold that thing up. Hold that thing up. All right. He's like, they couldn't see it. I mean, you hold it up. I think they'll even see it on the camera, that thing there. I mean, that thing. I, so I said, we're going to look at the book of Revelation. He left the service. He's like, let me get my big Bible to check up on me here. So yeah, so those are things. What else comes to mind when you hear about here, the book of Revelation? Anybody? Huh? The millennium. And Satan chained for a thousand years. Yeah, I'm glad. I am really glad you said that because that's going to be a key point tonight as we mention the millennium. Anybody else? What comes to mind when we say, when we mention the book of Revelation? A new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. Yes, sir. I think it's some pretty wild imagery. Wild imagery. There is some wild imagery in there, no doubt about it. Somebody else, what comes to mind? Uh, come to the book of the Revelation. Well, new heaven and new earth, but heaven not not specifically. Yeah. Anything else? What comes to mind right away? Book of Revelation. Ah, oh, judgment seats. Yeah. No, nobody did. Mrs. Bailey. The keys to yeah yeah. Hmm? The seven, yeah. We, we're going to look at the judgments and as they, in different successive series. So yeah, a lot of thoughts. But I want to give you this. In fact, notice, you'll notice the title. If you have in your Bible, if you look at your Bible, um, typically what you have in, is the chapter heading. Who's got a, a book heading? The title of the book. What, what does your Bible say? This isn't the inspired text. This is the the book division heading. Mine says the, mine says the revelation of what? What is is that? What your title says on your chapter division? Huh? Yours says like what mine says: the revelation of Saint John the Divine. Anybody else have that one on their on their heading there? But that's a that's a misnomer, right? Because the real title 
comes from the very first couple of words in our opening text tonight. Verse number one, let's read the first statement together. The opening line is what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. So this is the revelation of Jesus given to John and to you and me this evening. Let's pray for God to bless the study. Lord, as we embark on the study of your word, I pray that that our hearts and minds would be open. Lord, there's much for us to learn, but there's also much for us to apply. I pray that you'd help us to be guided by the scriptures, help us to learn, help us to make much of you, Jesus, our Savior, as we study your revelation. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to give you this key concept, and this is really important as we start out this study and as we start out this evening. The singular focus, the number one singular focus of the book of Revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ. As you study Revelation, all of those things that you all mentioned are going to be key components in the book. But what you're going to see very clearly from the outset as we look at the first eight verses tonight, that what the Holy Spirit wants us to come away with is a great and glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's important because people get sidetracked when they study the book of Revelation sometimes, don't they? What kind of things do people get sidetracked on? Huh? The signs and the wonders, maybe? The mark of the beast? What else? The, yeah, they, they, they'll look at the Antichrist. Sometimes the signs of the times people will get sidetracked on and they'll look at current events and they'll try to line them up and they'll try to, and some people go so far as to try to set a date for the coming of the Lord, which we know Jesus expressly forbade that. Uh, but there's a lot of ways that even Bible believers can get sidetracked and can focus really on the wrong things in the book of Revelation. In fact, one of the things that wasn't mentioned that can get side that can sidetrack people is endless debates about the book of Revelation. How many of you have ever in your Christian journey debated someone about something in the book of Revelation? Disagreed about something, debated about something. Yeah, it's 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 been debated back and forth since the beginning of the church age. And so we don't need to get sidetracked on debates. In fact, you may have some different uh, points of view than I do as we interpret this book. I'm going to try my best to interpret it as I believe is uh, portrayed in the Bible and as, as, it, uh, is, as it is compared with other scriptures. We're going to do that, but there may be areas of disagreement. If that became our focus, we would miss the whole point of the book because the whole focus of the book is... It's to reveal Jesus Christ and to make much of Jesus. So whenever anybody reads the book of Revelation, regardless of how they interpret individual events and circumstances and prophecies, the fact is we can all come away with a greater and grander and more glorious view of Jesus. So that's the, going to be the key concept. Well, let's dive right in. As we said, we'll go verse by verse. We already read verse number one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, we see a little bit as we look at this introduction here, the, the writer 
gives really waits no time telling us the things that he's going to be talking about. He's not talking about things that have already happened primarily, but you'll notice in verse number one that the topic of the book is things that what? Things that are coming, things that are future. And how future are they? Shortly. Thank you for looking right at the text there. They are things that are coming shortly. Now, what do you think that shortly means when it says, I am going to show you, I am going to show you things which must shortly come to pass? What do you think shortly means? Soon? Okay. Short for God, right? So soon for God is, well, we know that um, Peter tells us that a day is with, speaking of the coming of Christ, that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. So this very well could mean that the interpretation of shortly could mean that these things are about to happen, that the, the, they're eminent, they're, they are, uh, or imminent rather, they are right about to happen. Or shortly can also be, the, the Greek word can also be interpreted when they happen, they're going to move very quickly. So things that will happen quickly. So in other words, when the ball starts rolling, what's going to happen? That these things are going to move fast. It's going to happen very quickly. Things which must shortly come to pass. So the topic, right from the introduction, we understand that the topic of this book is future events. We're looking for things that are yet to come. But in this introduction, he doesn't only introduce the topic but you'll see he also records a blessing for us. Read on into verse number two. It's, it says it's the, um, that this was signified by the angel of the servant John, who bear record of the word of God, who bear record of the word of God. Let's stop there for a moment. When it says bear record of the word of God, thinking about John as the author, what does this phrase, does this phrase remind us of anything? Bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. What is this telling us about, about John? He's an eyewitness. But if you're a, if you're a careful student of the Bible, you're going to see some, some, some what Bible scholars would call Johannine or of John word structure here huh who said it the word what's the significance of that in his gospel in john 1 1 in the beginning was the word so in other words this writer is the same one who bear record of the word of god bear record of the word of god there's more than there's there's more than this. There's more than just that statement, though, that's, that's the, indicative of the writings of John. There's another, another statement here. Yeah. Yeah, he saw it. And this is the record. And this is the record. You'll find that in the epistle of John, that statement, this is the record. So both in the gospel of John and the epistle of 1 John, he talks about bearing record to Jesus. So this is John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Now, there's a promise. Look at verse number three. Blessed or blessed is he that, what's the first thing? 
Okay, so the first part, if you want the blessing, then you need to be somebody who's willing to read the book of the Revelation. And there are people that have started and gotten all confused and caught up, and they just folded it and put it away. But God actually said that there is a blessing that comes to everyone who read it. And not only to the ones who will read, but then they've got to go from reading, and then they've got to start hearing. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. But it's not enough to read and hear. The blessing ultimately comes if we will what? If we'll keep. Now that's interesting. Because normally the book of Revelation is presented in, in terms of knowledge and information, get, like learning, 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 learning. But I believe that this indicates here that when you read it, when you learn it, there are principles that you find in here that should cause us to change the way we live so that we keep the words of the book. So we keep the words of it. Now, so blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. In other words, it, it is right there. It could happen at any moment. The time is at hand. So we see in these first three verses, there's an introduction and a blessing. Now we move into verse number four. And in verse number four, we see both the authorship and the audience of the book of Revelation, the authorship and the audience. So first of all, we've already been introduced to him. Who is the author? Who is the human author of the book? It is John, the apostle John. What do we know about the apostle John? Can anyone tell me what we know from the scriptures about the apostle John? Yes, John is known as the disciple who Jesus loved. What were some, does anybody remember there's a, there's a particularly poignant scene that demonstrated that close relationship between John and Jesus? What was that scene? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, well, Donna mentioned at the Last Supper. There was a scene at the cross, though. We'll go to that next. There's a scene at the Last Supper where where is, so if Jesus is seated here at the head of the table, John is where? He's, yeah, he's leaning on, the Bible says he rested his head on, he was leaning on Jesus' bosom. He just, he leaned into him. They had a close, close, not just, not just disciple and master, but I believe they had a close friend, bond of friendship in the human sense of the word between Jesus and the apostle John. And then there's the scene at the cross. What was it at the cross that happened? Yeah, Jesus is on the cross, and there is the Apostle John, and there is Mary, the mother of Jesus, woman, thy son, and he says to John, thy mother. He entrusts, so John was the one who cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, into her, into her old age and for the rest of her life. The close relationship between John and Jesus. What else do we know about John, though? That's kind of the soft side. Yep. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. What about him? Yeah, yeah. 
Right, right. So Peter says, Peter, God says to, um, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, that whole scene. And Peter says, well, what about John? And, and G- Jesus says, hey, if I will that he stays alive until I return, that's my business. I'm paraphrasing very loosely there. But, and because of that, what did everybody assume? And this is actually recorded in the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember that? It's a little nugget at the end. Because, because Jesus said that to John, everybody assumed what? That he would never die until Jesus came back. But then John puts in there, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, if I will, if it's my will. It could be also, we believe that John was the oldest living of all the disciples. So it could have been legendary that had, and that may be why John put it in the gospel of John, because people might've thought, man, this guy is so old. Surely Jesus will return before he dies. Um, what else do we know about John? It's yes, it's very much assumed that he was likely the among the youngest of the disciples. In fact, some people it was acceptable for a late in the culture of the day. My understanding is it was acceptable for a late years teenager to leave his family if he was traveling with a well-known teacher or rabbi. And so John would have fit that description. It's very possible that John may have began following Christ at 16, 17 years old. So he very well may have been the youngest. Something else, though, that I think we've forgotten about him. There's that soft side of John, but then there was this powerful... Do you remember who his brother was? James. They're the, thank you. They are the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. He nicknamed these guys because they're like... These, these are the guys that are like... When people are mocking Jesus, James and John, do you remember what they said? People are not receptive to the ministry. What, what do they say? You know, I, you, I see you shaking your head. No? All right, so he's like, Lord, why don't we like bring down lightning bolts and destroy these people right here? And Jesus is like, no, I didn't come to destroy men's life. I came to save men's lives. And so they get the, they get the name, the Sons of Thunder. It's his brother James, who's one of the first, uh, after Stephen, he's one of the first martyrs in the church. You read that in the book of Acts. Very early on, the brother of John, James' brother of John, is killed by Herod. So John knows, John knows power, John knows love, John knows heartache. And by the time we get to the writing, and we'll talk more about this next week when we look at the Isle of Patmos, but by the time we get to this writing, John is a very, very old man. We know that because in the epistles of John, he talks about being older. And now this book is written even later. So John is a very, very old man by the time he writes this. Um, almost universally accepted that the book of Revelation is the final book written chronologically in the New Testament. This is the final book. So John. Now, you see this statement here in the verse, John 2, who is the audience? John to the seven churches which are in Asia. The seven churches which were in Asia. We're going to come back to them, but it's important to remember that this letter was first, this book of Revelation was first given to these specific seven churches located in Asia. You cannot think of Asia as China, Japan. We're talking about Turkey, Asia, what came to be known as Asia Minor. So these uh, these cities, uh, we'll look at them a little bit more carefully 
in the coming weeks, we're actually going to take our Sunday morning series and focus on these churches. A lot of practical truths there. But it was written to the seven churches. Now, but the, the, the ultimate author, the ultimate author is not John. It says here in verse number four that John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. It's a reference to God the Father. And now you have the statement and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Up Now we come to the very first difficult. <laughs> up until now, it's been easy, but we're only four verses in and we come to the first difficult truth to understand in the book of Revelation. Now let's get a little bit of context. Verse number four says that John is writing to the seven churches and this grace and peace is coming from him which is and which was, is, which was and which is to come. Then it's coming from the seven spirits before the throne. And then thirdly, in verse number five, it's coming from whom? From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. So what are these seven spirits? Any thoughts on what are these seven spirits which are before his throne? Anybody? Archangels, okay. That's a people have people have surmised that this could be just some special um, special angelic beings that are there. In the context of the of the 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 grammar, the structure of it, it would seem as if it would be referring to. Yeah, there could be. That, that's a good statement. That's a good. That's that. That surmises most of the book of Revelation. There's a connection there, and I'm not sure what. That, that, we, might, we might go back to that over and over again in this study. But if you look at the structure and how other uh, salutations to books are written, he's, first he starts with the Father, then he goes with the seven spirits, and then he goes in verse number five to who? Jesus. So the predominant view is that the seven spirits is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, you'd say, well, the Holy Spirit is not seven. The Holy Spirit is what? One. Well, at the same time, our God is not three. He is one, yet at the same time, he is three. So there's one passage that people have gone to. And again, I would not be dogmatic about it, but I would, be, I would lean toward this interpretation and where it comes from is the book of Isaiah, chapter number, you see I put that in your notes, Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3. And I, put, I gave you the verse here, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So we're talking about the Spirit of the Lord. So Spirit of Jehovah, that would be a reference to the Holy Spirit. So that would be number one. But now look at, there are six more descriptions of the Holy Spirit in, in Isaiah chapter, where are we? 11. So the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Then he's referred to secondly as the spirit of wisdom. Then a spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. 
That would be the only verse that would support such an assumption. I am going with it uh, for the simple reason as you look at the structure in verses 4 and 5 when he says, from him which is, was, and which is to come. Then in verse number 5, from Jesus, you put the Holy Spirit right in the middle of there. Again, I wouldn't argue with you on that, but that's how I would understand the idea here of the seven spirits of God. That would be a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. And if that's unsatisfactory for you, sorry, it's all I got. So let's move on from that because that's, that's not the main point that we need to cover tonight. So we're clear now on the introduction. We see what this book is all about. We see that there is, we've seen the author, we've seen the audience, and now we come to a really important question that's going to determine where we head from here. And that question is, how do we interpret the book of Revelation? How do we interpret the book of Revelation? You all already mentioned a lot of things that we're going to see. We're going to see beasts and angels and creatures and thrones, and a dragon, and we're going to see a, a woman. There's, a, there's all kinds of stuff that we're going to, pe people and characters and images that we're going to be introduced to. So what the church at large has struggled with for 2,000 years is exactly how do we interpret all of these things? Well, let me ask you a question. Should we interpret them literally, or should we interpret them allegorically? Hang on, Bill, because you've got a smirk on your face. I don't like to call on people who raise their hand with a smirk on their face. So what are you going to say there, Frank? I think a little bit of both. Okay, a little bit of both. What are you going to say, Bill? I was going to say yes. Yes, he was going to say yes. Do we interpret this literally or allegorically? And the answer that I'm getting from a couple of people here is yes. How many of you are, are with, are you tracking with them? You're going to say it's both literal and allegorical. Okay, so what is literal and what is allegorical? Ah, <laughs> there is the difficulty in studying the book of Revelation. I want to show you very briefly tonight four main methods that people who believe the Bible have used to interpret Revelation. Now, they've tried to strike this balance between what is literal and what is allegorical. What I am not going to show you tonight is the purely allegorical interpretation. What, what group takes a purely allegorical interpretation to the book of Revelation? Anyone know? Yes, the Roman Catholic um, organization takes a purely allegorical view of the book of Revelation. And they say that it's a, it, it's a struggle between the, in the day between the, the Roman Empire and the believers of the day, and they completely allegor, allegorical, whatever the word is. They turn the whole thing into an allegory, the whole book. But Bible believers, uh, re Reformed, pre-Reformed, but Bible believers throughout the ages have not taken that view. We believe that the Word of God is not... Uh, given by any private interpretation, but what God said, he expected to be understood. Do you believe that? So as Bible believers, we take what has been referred to as the historical grammatical approach, a historical grammatical approach. It's important when you read people's doctrinal statements or you look at how they interpret scripture, 
those are that's a key phrase right there historical grammatical that indicates these people take the book seriously they take the book ser seriously what, does anybody know what that means a, a historical grammatical interpretation what would we mean by that any anybody know or you take a guess at that when i say we yeah Yeah, that's exactly right. The point is, you, uh, you first have to, before you understand the scripture, this isn't just a, I, I love the statement that the Bible is a love letter from God to us. That's a wonderful statement, right? It's not a very good method of Bible study, though, <laughs> okay? It's good inspiration to think of it that way, but in order to understand it, you have to look at it, well, this part of the Bible was written in this historical setting to this group of people, and it was written with grammar, and it was written to intelligently in order to be understood, and the Bible has to be understood in its historical context, the uh, intent of the author, the intent of the Holy Spirit to the audience that was originally supposed to receive it, and then you and I look at the scriptures, and we apply what applies to us, but there are plenty of things that you read in the Bible that you understand, well, that doesn't apply to me, for instance, that applied to the nation of Israel in this moment, in this time, or, or, or whatever. You, you understand the basic principle. It's that, what does it say? What, what, what is the intended meaning? And that's how I should understand it. That's a historical grammatical interpretation. So as we come to this, I'm only looking, I'm only looking at views that Bible-believing people who have taken a historical grammatical approach have taken. Now, the key distinction all comes down to this, and this is a very, very important question. How do you view the millennial kingdom? Because the millennial kingdom is a major theme in the scripture. And we'll look at it in more detail toward the end of our study, but we're kind of putting everything in context. When I say the millennial kingdom, what am I referring to? What is the, okay, I saw Mrs. Bailey mouth the words, I'm referring to a, a thousand year reign of Christ. Why a, why a thousand years? Well, because it's mentioned in a number of, in a number of locations that there is, will be 1,000 years. It's mentioned in the book of the Revelation. Now, in the Old Testament and in the teachings of Jesus, the millennium, the millennial, or the thousand years is not mentioned as often. What is mentioned instead? What is it referred to as? Go ahead, Bill. Could you say that out loud? <laughs> yeah, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I wouldn't make a distinction between those two things. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, or just the kingdom, the kingdom. So it is referred to in those ways. So the big question is this, how you interpret the book of Revelation is going to depend entirely on how you interpret the millennial kingdom of Christ. So let me give you these four views that have risen and fallen, come in popularity, out of popularity, these views that have risen up in the last 2,000 years. One is what is referred to as the preterist view. How many of you have ever heard this before? Preterism, okay? Preterism essentially says this. Everything you read in the book of Revelation 
was written by John, yes, as a prophecy, but it was all fulfilled right after it was written. Now, why? what, what are some ideas that may cause them to believe that? Well, I'll give them to you quickly for sake of time. One, John said, well, these things are about to happen, right? They're gonna, these are, will shortly happen. There's another thing that supports this is the Olivet Discourse. And this will be something that we'll probably go back to at some point in our study. And we're gonna, while we'll be in the, Revela- in the book of Revelation, we're going to have to go back to places like Isaiah. We're going to have to go back to places like the book of Daniel. We're going to have to go back to Jesus' teaching and the Olivet Discourse. But the Olivet Discourse is that famous uh, passage where Jesus foreshadows the destruction of the temple, where he, foreshad- where he predicts the abomination of desolation. It's the passage where Jesus uh, predicts, and, he, and then he talks about uh, two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left, etc. So because the temple, was the temple destroyed? It was in AD 70. So because of that, some people have taken the preterist view, and they said, you know what? All of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70. Now, I gave that one first. I think it's probably the weakest view of all. Now, again, these aren't people that have a goal of denying the Bible, right? These aren't, that's not their goal. That's not where they're starting from. They're trying to understand. But this is the weakest view of all views of the book of Revelation. And you could probably tell me why, even though, I, I mean, I put them in your notes there, but you could probably even add reasons for this. The problem is, There are climactic events, there are climactic events that were prophesied both in the Olivet Discourse and in the book of Revelation that simply have not been fulfilled. Talks about the the sun being darkened. It It talks about them being the most terrible days that had ever come on the face of the earth. None of that has was happened, none of that could have been fulfilled. Also, another huge problem with the preterist position is this. Almost all scholars agree that the book of Revelation was written after the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. So they've got all these problems where now they're going to have to go back and say, oh, well, it was actually written sooner than people think, etc. Too many problems. I think that's a view that we just take our red pen and we just cross that one out. If you need to study, my point now isn't to to make a full defense or argument about these, but just to make you aware of them. So I'm taking my red ink and I'm just crossing that one out right there. It's the least popular view, though it does come in and out of style over the years. The second view is probably one of the most popular views throughout church history, and that is what is referred to as the millennial view. Any Latin scholars here? What would millennial mean? Are you just, you're just contra- no. <laughs> What? Yep. Yes. No millennium. Without the millennium. So the millennial view has been, a, has been a widely held view throughout church history, and they say this. The kingdom is spiritual. Christ is currently ruling and reigning in heaven. Everything you read about the kingdom, it's going on in heaven right now. Now, there are some problems with that view. Among them, what about all of the unfulfilled prophecies to Israel? All of the prophecies about, we looked at them in our recent Sunday mornings about the king of David and 
the, the, I mean, the son of David and the kingdom and, and all the prophecies that Israel would return to its glorious state. What do they do with all that? Well, the problem is they have to take the church, they have to take Israel and replace it with the church. That's a problem. That's a problem as you study the Bible. In fact, my challenge to anyone who holds an amillennial view is this. You have, to alleg- you have to make an allegory of so many Old Testament prophecies. If we had applied that to the prophecies of Jesus' first coming, he never would have come. He would have stayed in heaven. If you were so loose with the, the figurative meanings of those prophecies, then it, Jesus literally was born in Bethlehem. There's literally going to be, I believe the Bible teaches there's literally going to be a king and it's going to be King Jesus who sits on the throne and rules and reigns for a thousand years in his literal kingdom. There's too many scriptures unfulfilled. Now, any ideas on why this might have been a popular view for so, so long? I know, Mr. Thompson, you know why this would have been a popular view for so long. It has to do with the nation of Israel. Anybody else? Why, Why may this have been a very, very popular view for a long time? Yeah, absolutely right. There was no nation of Israel. For how long? <laughs> Can you do the math? 1940 what? 1948? 47. 1947 minus 70. And how, what do you come up with? Yeah. 1,874 or something, whatever. 1,800 years. For 1,800 years of church history, there is no nation of Israel. So, most Bible scholars would say, well, we must have kind of misunderstood that. You know, it must be a spiritual kingdom. The church has taken over. This is very popularly held. I tell you, study of prophecy exploded after the return of Israel as a nation in 1947. I mean, people were just like, they picked up their Bibles again. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation became major topics in churches again. Why? My personal opinion, and again, there are good people that have, and you'd be surprised if you looked at church history at some of the well-known Bible church leaders that had an amillennial view. Again, I can understand, but my view would be this. They were allowing the current events to shape their understanding of Scripture rather than the scripture to shape their understanding of the current events that they were experiencing. So we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. But the amillennial view is coming back into popularity with the resurgence of the reformed movement in Christianity. And so I think it's something we need to be aware of and we need to, uh, we need to have the tools to understand why it's got some serious problems in that view. Now we come thirdly to what has fallen out of favor, very much less popular view now, and that is post-millennial. Oh, the post-millennialists believe that there's a literal kingdom coming, except they believe this. As the song says, the, the, the gospel will go into all the world, and the darkness shall turn to dawning, and Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. That was a missionary anthem from years ago because the post-millennialists believe this, that yes, the kingdom will come, but the church, the church is going to move forward with the gospel and people are going to get saved. And so many people are going to be saved that we are going to bring about the kingdom of God. 
Now, is there any scriptural reason why someone might believe that? Not much. Except the one passage where it says, and this gospel will be proclaimed in all the earth, and then shall the end come. Right? You're familiar with that passage. That's, that's, a, very, that's a passage that a post-millennialist would cling to. Now, in 1890 or 1910, that would, looking at current events around you, I mean, what's going on? You, my dad talked about the Cambridge Missions Movement. You had a, a global, you had the British Empire at its height and American colonialism and missionaries going into all the world. There was this, this was before World War I, right? There was this grand view that, the, that, that progress and Christianity are marching forward. Well, it only took two world wars to really sour people's disposition on what the Christian nations were capable of. But there are some theological problems, not just historical. That is still, just like with amillennialism, the, there are unfulfilled promises to Israel in the Old Testament that we're waiting on. The church has to replace Israel. And then it ignores, it completely ignores that the Bible says there's going to be an apostasy before the end, a great falling away. So I get my red ink out again, and I've crossed out the preterist view. I've crossed out the amillennial view, and now I'm crossing out the post-millennial view. I would encourage you to do the same. But now we, come to, now we come to the fourth view, which I believe, obviously, is the save the best for last. And so I would uh, support the premillennial and dispensational view, though I'm going to give a qualifier at the end. I'm not a I'm not giving a full-throated endorsement of all that dispensationalism brings to the table. But the key here is this. The kingdom is distinct from the church. The kingdom is distinct from the church. It's focused on Israel. The Bible refers to the times of the Gentiles. The Bible refers to Daniel's 70th week and all of the days that need to be, that need to be accomplished on Israel. So this view teaches a dispensational view that God dealt with the nation of Israel. Now God deals with the church. And in the coming age to come, God's focus will return to the nation of Israel. Now, as you look at the scripture, I don't think there's any way of escaping. Otherwise, you have to out, turn into an allegory all of the scriptural promises that were given to Israel. They won't be fulfilled in Israel. However, that being said, the dispensational view is not without its problems either. Like, whoa, I thought you were dispensational. Yeah, but it has its own problems. If it didn't have any problems, there wouldn't be any disagreement about it. Everybody would just accept it. It has its problems. And I think one problem with the uh, premillennial or dispensational view can be sometimes there is too much distinction made between Israel and the church. Too much distinction can be made. So in other words, if you talk with a very strict dispensationalist, all of the parables that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, guess how many of them apply to us? Zero. If you follow a strict dispensationalist view, then all of the prophecies that Jesus gives about the king, or the parables Jesus gives about the kingdom of God and talking to disciples, all those are put on hold and they, are, they only apply to the kingdom age. And there are a lot of people that take that dispensational view. I would be a soft or modified dispensationalist. And I think really the Bible, as with a lot of positions, there's a harmonization of these views. The fact would be this, that the church 
is a part of the kingdom of God. In fact, the apostles talk about that. They refer to the to, to kingdom teachings in the epistles to the churches. So the church is a part of the kingdom, but it's a kingdom that has not yet come in its fullness. And so you look at Paul's writings about they are not all Israel, you know, but we are grafted in. You combine those views, and I would, I would still be technically, I'm going to be presenting a dispensational view, but I do, not, I do believe that sometimes dispensationalists can get too busy dividing up the scriptures when I think the entire gospel, the, 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 the bulk of the gospel narratives and the teachings of Jesus applies just as much to us. Not every, not every passage, but most of them would apply to the church as well as Israel, as we will both make up the coming kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot there. It's a bit academic as we start this thing off. It's a lot to unpack. So, um, but I think it's important for us to take this seriously as we wrestle with these teachings in the Word of God. So, you've got the the preterist, amillennial, postmillennial, and the premier position, which is the premillennial dispensational view of the Scripture. Well, let's finish. We'll read a few more verses and we'll conclude this evening. And it, it's much more interesting reading now as we come to the end uh, compared to that little uh, summary that I gave you. Verse number five. To remember, this is all about Jesus, there's a dedication. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So much here. The, he's the witness. He's the word. He's the declaration of who God is. He, the first begotten of the dead talks about his resurrection. There is no kingdom that will stand against him. He, he's, he personally sacrificed himself for us. And then he's made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Is there any question that the Holy Spirit says, pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to him. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Listen, whether you're amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, whatever, we're looking for Jesus. He's coming. He's coming in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Our prayer should be each week as we gather together, Lord, increase my knowledge, but increase my love for you. Let me come away, not a scholar, but let me come away a worshiper. Let me come out worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we've had this time this evening. I pray that you would just help us, Lord, as we read, to know you more, to love you more through our study of the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. 
Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.